remove Javante Davis. Living young, got room for patience. This a dope podcast. It ain't drugs when we move the bases. Houston, we got a problem. Taking off like the Rockets. This a three man weed coming at you with topics. Get to hit me with logic. Baby, showtime's back. You slow, catch up. You're gonna fall now flat. It's imperative. Transitioning from changing the narrative. You can catch this wave from the Marlins to the Mariners. Doing things you can't believe. It's the three man week. Come at you with topics. No, you cannot stop it. Doing things you can't believe. It's the three man week. We come at you with topics. No, you cannot stop it. Good people, good people. Welcome to the three man weave podcast. I am your favorite guy today. <laughs> uh, we have a great show in store for you. Uh, before we get started, I would love to introduce my co-host, who I got with me today. You already know it's your boy, Hill. He'll go Hill regardless, baby. Let's get it. And you got your favorite guy, Cannon. I'm normally your favorite guy. I will take the back seat today. Yeah, we're going to go ahead and let, we're gonna let AJ be the favorite guy today. Y'all know this is episode 87. You can catch us on all major podcast platforms, 3-Man Weave, Instagram, Twitter, 3-Man Weave underscore. You can email us at podcast.3.man.weave at gmail.com. I want to thank everybody uh, for the YouTube viewership, everybody in the Facebook group. Um, keep supporting. And I'm, I'm wearing orange for a reason. Hey. <laughs> you did. hey, man, so let's go ahead and kick it off, man. We got a very special guest with us today. Um, he was the 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 coach that got the Raiders to 8-8. Eight and eight. Mm-hmm. He made Andy Dalton look like an MVP. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know what I mean? The head coach of the Cleveland Browns. And, I mean, of course, I mean, he got his own tequila now, mm-hmm. so we definitely got to talk liquor. I'm actually drinking tequila mm-hmm. today just, you know, out of honor. Without further ado, I would love to bring on Hugh Jackson. What's going on, man? <laughs> What's going, going on, coach? coach? What's going What's on, man? coach? Hey, glad to be here. You hey, man, we, we, thank thing. you for having us. Yeah, it's uh, it's an honor, coach. We just want to say um, we have been a fan of your career, um, even though we're young, you know. Um me, I'm a Washington football team fan, and so um, all the way back to the to the uh, Steve Spurrier regime, uh, and you uh, calling the offense there. That's kind of when I I was a young boy then, but that's when I fell in love because you were one of the few coaches in the league that were black. And my dad actually told me about you, um, and he's a lifelong Oakland Raider fan, so he is really psyched that you're on the show today oh that's awesome make sure you Mm -hmm. give your dad my hellos i will definitely absolutely and i mean like like i said before you know i'm a bit i'm a cincinnati Bengals fan you know i have my fingers crossed because one of the things that i do want to get into was you know your time as our oc and your time as our wide receivers coach but i know towards the end of your tenure with the cincinnati Bengals, it was more so like it there was rumors that there was a succession plan in place between you and Marvin, but that job came available. So I want to get into that a little bit more, but you know, I kind of want to let Andrew, let let Hill talk to you a little bit as well first before we get into it. Well, let's do it. Well, you know, before we talk football, you know, we try to you know we try to ease some of our guests in, you know, with something, you know, get you get you loosened up a little bit first. So I really want you to uh, go in depth with first about your foundation. 
Mm-hmm. Well, it's called the Hugh Jackson Foundation. You can find it at HughJackson.org. We deal in human trafficking. Mm-hmm. We're trying to rescue every victim of human trafficking that we can. We have a residence uh, that we partnered with the Salvation Army at the Harbor Light District in Cleveland, uh, where we house human trafficking victims. Wow. We do everything we can to uh, get them the resources that they need uh, to uh, become better. Absolutely. And what was something that really like, you know, especially in Ohio, there's been some, you know, really uh, crazy cases, you know, with human trafficking. Mm -hmm. What made you decide this is the direction that I want to go? This is something where I want to put my resources to. You know, I saw what was happening uh, when I was in Cincinnati and I could kind of hear some of the rumblings in Cleveland. Mm -hmm. Ohio being one of the, 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 the cities where it was really growing. Right. I was like, man, we got to do something to stomp this out. Mm-hmm. And when you think about it, I really didn't understand it. And the more I started to understand what human trafficking is, because a lot of people think it's prostitution. Mm-hmm. It's much different than that. Mm-hmm. And so once you educate yourself to start to understand that it affects every gender, it's uh, every economic situation you can think of. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it, it has no, uh, it doesn't turn away from anybody. I mean, it's in families, it's around the corner, it's down the street. Uh, it's so I, I said, man, we got to do something about this. And I met a guy by the name of John Morgan, who was on a task force in Cleveland. And we became really good friends. And boy, we, we made it happen. That's beautiful. That's beautiful. And I know, like I said, and I'm appreciative being an Ohio native, kind of seeing uh, a lot of stuff that goes on in Ohio and being in the Midwest. Sometimes you kind of get lost in the shuffle. Mm-hmm. Uh, but being from there, I hear some of the rubblings and all of my family still being there. Um, and majority of my family being women, of course, it's always that fear that you have just doing something normal, walking to the store mm-hmm. from, you know, from your car, uh, going to work, anything along those lines. It's just that fear of, you know, are you going to be OK? And so I really appreciate the work that you do. And that's one of the reasons what made me reach out to you uh, after kind of going through your website and seeing that you were doing this uh, and it was based out of Ohio, kind of started in Ohio, mm-hmm. uh, really felt like something big to me. So that's why I. I wanted to reach out um, and really try and give give this platform to some of the people that we know and do everything that we can help as well. Well, thank you, because it's near and dear to my heart just to watch how some of these victims get groomed mm-hmm. and how social media plays a huge part. Absolutely. And now that we're in this COVID situation where everybody's using more technology, parents really got to pay more attention to their kids. Mm-hmm. Yes. These people prey on these kids on these particular technology instruments mm-hmm. and you know your kid is lost. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So you gotta really pay attention to this and and make sure you um, uh, make sure you know exactly what your kid is doing that way. And that, that really hits home that really hits home for me, um, uh, being an educator in uh, the District of Columbia, you know, right now we're dealing with remote learning where every child has a device. Um, me being an educator of young children, I teach third grade. So it's like all of them have a device. They're all they're, they're doing all of these programs, Instagram, YouTube, social media. And that's my biggest fear. Um, like AJ said, that was one of the reasons why when he said, you know, let's try to reach out to Hugh. I said, absolutely, because I'm it. it Human trafficking is huge in the District of Columbia. It, it is a major problem right now. I know families personally that I've worked with over the years that have been affected by it. And so it, it's something 
that's really near and dear to my heart also. So I really commend you and your foundation for all the work you all are doing. So Thank please you. keep it up. Yes, sir. And for me, I'm more of in the preventive stage. I have a young daughter and close to me, I have my niece that she's very, she's growing every, you know, every day. She's very active on social media. And I'm more trying to educate myself on, like I said, in the preventive stage. And so some of these, so I don't become, you know, so they don't become a statistic of this, of this right here. So I'm more so paying attention and being more aware so I can do my part in the preventive stages. That's awesome. It's really amazing when people think about it. Um, we are that other, you know, uh, era where we're learning about social media. Mm -hmm. I don't know how to work it like that, you know. Yeah. So I think what happens with most parents, they all of a sudden get a little bit intimidated because mm -hmm. they don't know about all the different platforms. Mm -hmm. Right. Say to the parents is educate yourself on the platforms. You, you probably bought the device for your kid. Mm -hmm. Make sure you know their passwords. Mm -hmm. You know when they're on, who they're talking to, how long they're talking to. Mm -hmm. Go back and check every now and then. Just ask for the phone. Ask right. for the yeah. device just to make sure. And it might seem like you're going a little bit overboard, but I'd rather take the chance to go overboard. Yeah. Something happened and we go, boy, I should have done this. Yeah. I mean, it's a dangerous time. So Absolutely. I should every parent would make sure. Do you, do you think that is a product of a lot of parents actually trying to have the devices as a tool to help them raise them to kind of keep them quiet and keep them occupied and not necessarily being involved. Um, and uh, how can we kind of step away from that and try and not necessarily feel like I, I know when I grew up, my mom didn't care. The word impose wasn't a word that was said. <laughs> she didn't care. I couldn't, I, I couldn't lock doors, any of that. So some of these parents feel like they're imposing on their child's mm -hmm. privacy. How can we kind of, in this new era, have a balancing act of making your child feel independent, but still kind of monitoring these things for their safety as well. I think being transparent with your kids and having them understand why you're doing right. it. And that you are truly trying to protect them, that you want them to understand modern technology mm -hmm. is a privilege to have it, mm -hmm. you know, necessity. And I say that understanding that there are some parents where it is a necessity. And I feel for those parents, but at the same time, everybody's got to be mindful that we we have a right, as you just said, to check, to know, to be able to ask anything we want when it comes to something that may put you in harm's way. And I think if our kids understand that, hopefully we brought them up the right way. They'll pay more attention and maybe alert us when something's a little off, off kilter there. Absolutely. And so... Uh, not to necessarily jump, but I want to make sure that we kind of get to everything. Uh, so, Grand Leenda, how did you get into the tequila business as well? It's like, okay, like you, you're a man of, uh, you might be the most interesting man in the planet, not the Dozeckis, man. I like to have my hands in a lot of things, but I met uh, Daryl Spann, who's the CEO. Uh, he was the only black tequila owner in the world mm. through a mutual friend of mine. We hit it off. I tasted the juice. I fell in love with it. Well, more so than that, I fell in love with him. Mm -hmm. It was right. a, worked his tail off. Uh, he was in the back of his car, man, making it happen, uh, just turning it over, trying to scale it. And as you know, when you're trying to do that, you need support. Mm -hmm. And uh, one thing led to another, and we be, we've become like brothers, you know, in this in this deal. But more so than that, we're really given a great product 
to everybody because it's organic. It's 100% USDA organic tequila. We have all the flavors. We're going to have an extra Anejo that's going to be coming out next year, seven year. Mm-hmm. Uh, that for seven years. So mm-hmm. it's going to be really good and we'll compete with anybody. So all you guys that are drinking, Don Julio, Kazamu, and, and all of a sudden you got uh, uh, Michael Jordan's uh, and LeBron James got one now. We're coming. We'll hey, let them know, Coach. Let them know. Hey, they can't touch this. Mm-hmm. And look, we backing you. We're going to be with you. So, Appreciate um, it. You, so got, you got support here all the way. And so I know uh, you said you have the, the seven year coming. Um, and let, let some of the people that are listening know, like, you know, the, the expansion, where they could possibly find you down the line, things along those lines. Oh, yeah. So uh, we're expanding everywhere. Matter mm-hmm. of fact, we have a relationship with the Black Hole that's really taken us to a whole different level. And they're with the Raiders. Uh-huh. And obviously, they have a lot of different uh, groups throughout the world. So our tequila is kind of flying everywhere. But we're really in L.A. We're in Las Vegas. We're in Florida. We're about to be in Dallas. We're in Hawaii. Uh, and so um, we do a lot of business in Las Vegas. We're in Whole Foods. We're in Lee's Liquors. Uh, we're in Wally Wines and Spirits in California. We're in, we're in golf courses in California. So we're starting to really expand this. And like I said, it's the best. The Blanco is our well tequila. That's what everybody used to mix and make their margaritas. Uh-huh. And we have a silver, which that bottle looks just like the Raiders. And it has a black hole emblem on it. Ooh. And that is branding. The, absolutely. <laughs> and the next uh, flavor we have, which is the uh, Reposado, which if you guys smoke cigars, is unbelievable. Mm. It's a great match. And then we have the Anejo, you know, which is two and a half years age, where Reposado is a year and a half year age. So mm. it's great stuff. And what's one? And which is your, your drink of choice? Every <laughs> you're good you're good i can't i can't trick you i can't trick you okay okay i'm gonna work on that i'm gonna work on that now let's see if we can transition to 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 some football okay now you see you said that um one of your bottles is shaped kind of like the black hole has the raiders emblem right mm-hmm. so it must seem like it's no hard feelings towards how that ended in in with the raiders no, it wasn't. Um, you know, really and truly, I had to accept that situation. I said that for this reason. The guy that hired me died. Yeah. You know, Al Davis was mm-hmm. my guy. I mean, right. I say I probably had a relationship with him that a lot of people didn't. I don't know why me. Mm-hmm. I think the, the good man upstairs for allowing me the opportunity to be his last head coach, uh, be the last coach that talked to him. Um, he was outstanding for me. I'm, like I said, very appreciative. Uh, and it was a great time. And when Mark took over, I understood that Mark did a lot about working with people where that's not our style. Our right. style. I'm making a decision. And anytime it's a decision like that, people won't want to get who they want in there, not who's there. So uh, I knew that probably things would go the other way, and it did. And you just got to live with it and move forward. Do you so, think, uh, do you really, I know, was it kind of hard? I know you said, you know, you had a relationship and the person there, you know, kind of he, uh, Al Davis, he passed. But seeing what you did for the Raiders organization at that time, and I believe you went eight and eight with Jason Campbell as your quarterback. And he got hurt. Yeah, and he, and he got hurt. And that was a success that the Raiders have not seen in a long time. Absolutely. Do you think, do you think having to, you know, be that head coach and then still 
take a step back to go back to, I believe, a coordinator's job after that. Mm-mm. I went and coached on defense. A mm. defense. Okay, yes, I'm sorry. A we, defense. And, we, and like you said, we will get into that. Oh, yeah. We, 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 we'll unwrap all of this. Yeah, we're going to get into this. But do you think that, you know, in the back of your mind when that happens, even though the person you had a relationship with is kind of like, what more do you want from me? Absolutely. I would say you guys need to go do some, some fact-finding. Mm-hmm. Um, in the history of the National Football League, I don't know how many 8 and coaches have ever been fired. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah that, and- that part was hard, but I had to understand it because the owners can do what they want to do. Mm-hmm. And now Mark was the owner. Yeah. So I had to accept it. What I thought would really happen because for two years there, we had taken a team when I walked in the building we were 31st in offense. When I was the offense coordinator, we went from 31st to 6th. And the next year, we were, I think we were at 4th, and then Jason Campbell gets hurt. Darren McFadden gets hurt. Yep. And so I'm like, oh, my gosh. And we make a decision to bring Carson Palmer in, who had been on the couch. Mm-hmm. I was in college and coached also in Cincinnati. He comes in, and we're game away. We win the last game. Mm-hmm. We host the playoff game. Yeah, I remember okay. that. So, there was some excitement, you know, in the air. Um, like you said, the Raiders were in a situation never been in in a long time since 2002, and we didn't get it done. We scored 26 points, but we didn't make them punt one time. Yeah. And um, the rest is history. You know, they moved on. So that was hard. The hardest part for me, though, was when it was over, normally in the National Football League, as you see some of these coaches that get let go, they go get coordinator jobs. Mm-hmm. You know, they become the office coordinator, defense coordinator somewhere. I had to go coach on defense. Yeah. Secondary assistant and assistant special teams coach before I could ever get back to offense. Mm. And for my best friend, Marvin Lewis, who yeah. is, is like a brother to me, uh, and who basically helped save my career at that time. Mm. Absolutely. And that's what kind of brings me to my next point. When you see coaches like yourself, Ooh. Jim Caldwell, um, and, you know, I, to you know, to a degree, Marvin and Lovey Smith mm-hmm. have the success that you've all had in certain places, but when it starts to kind of decline or things go bad, it's almost like at the first sign of decline, it's over, mm-hmm. and then you have to basically Absolutely. you you really have to start anew, and then you see you know, I, 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 not to put you in the situation, but you see coaches like Matt Patricia. He has the same amount of wins that Jim Caldwell had in his last season mm-hmm. that, you know, he's had in his entire tenure. Right. And so how do you feel that it's just like the NFL is, are they blind to this? Or when you take a job, do you kind of know, like, I need to turn things around quick or I'm going to be out of here? Well, I think everybody, every black coach knows that, it's not just the weight of his race that he carries. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. He needs to win. Yeah, you know, absolutely. If you don't it just it doesn't work like that for us? So let's just be honest. That's not putting anybody down. In the hundred year history of the National Football League, there's only been eighteen minority head coaches. Mm-hmm. That's wild. This That's is a wild year league. Yeah. So what that tells you is you got to go back and look at the start of the league. What people don't know is minorities was not involved in the league. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. It took a long time before there was a player, and it took an act of somebody taking someone to court. Mm-hmm. 
it was, I think, 60 years after that before there was the first black minority head coach. Mm-hmm. Okay, so uh, what I'm saying to you is I think in order to understand it, people got to go back and walk through that process of what it was and why it's like this. 100%. Before, yeah, before they, before they say anything or find solutions or all this stuff that people are talking about because I think you got to understand it and regardless of what it is, then you have to have the right conversation mm. in order to fix it. I think yeah. people look for band-aids. Well, we got the Rooney Rule. Well, we're going to do this. We're gonna do it. Well, that, that, that hasn't done anything. Yeah. And, we, and we've touched on the Rooney Rule several times on this show, but I like what you said about uh, being a black man and knowing the fact that you have to win. I was watching a documentary and Harry Belafonte was talking about a pact that him and Sidney Poitier made with each other. Um, that they were not going to take any roles that depicted a black man when he wasn't a leader. So it means that I'm not going, if I'm going to be the detective, I'm going to be the lead detective. Uh, and I'm going to turn down all those subordinate roles, even if my family has to go through hard times because I know that if I do get the role as a black man, I have to win in order to open the door for the next black man. And, I, and I've seen that. You talk about the history of co- black coaches in the NFL, African-American coaches in the NFL. There's only been 18. And I was going to ask you about that. Um, one, I wanted to know who gave you your first break in the NFL. And I know you know all about Pacific and I also want to know who gave you your first break in football period because there's a lot of people who have like a coach's dream like everybody wants to be a coach but nobody knows the path to really become a coach and especially a professional coach right it's it's really a uh, daunting uh, task when I my first opportunity uh, coaching in college I'll, I'll skip over a lot of stuff, but when you coach at USC and, and Cal Berkeley, I worked for Steve Mariucci and John Robinson at USC, you get a little bit more opportunity to do things because you're at some major schools. Right. At USC, things didn't go well. Pete Carroll comes in. We're from the same school. Mm-hmm. He takes over. I have maybe have a chance to stay there. I make a decision that I want to go to the National Football League mm-hmm. because I had recruited two Heisman Trophy winners at USC. Mm-hmm. I wasn't mm-hmm. in any opportunities to be a head coach in college. I mm-hmm. go, well, I need to go to the National Football League and see what that experience would be. Mm-hmm. So Marty Schottenheimer is mm-hmm. the person who me on to the Redskins. Okay. That chance there. Mm-hmm. He left and went to the Chargers, and then the Redskins would not let me out of my contract. Mm-hmm. I stay there. I worked for Steve Spurrier. It was the first time I got a major role mm-hmm. in the Football League. I became his coordinator. He never had a coordinator mm-hmm. in his career. No one's ever called place for Steve Spurrier. Right. Wow. Yeah. I was his first. Head ball coach. <laughs> ball coach. So that started to really put my name out there. But then, as you guys know, for minority coaches, the goalposts always change. Mm-hmm. 100%. So when I kept looking around, what I saw that was happening, why, why my other uh, brothers from the other side were getting jobs because they were coaching quarterback. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I, I got to get into that room. And mm-hmm. so I went from coaching receivers, running backs, receivers. I've dealt with the offensive line. And my big break came when I went to Atlanta. I became um, the coordinator. And people got to understand, because people say you're the coordinator don't mean you play call. Right. <laughs> As black brothers get those opportunities, it's because we can control the locker room. Mm. You know, we, we know because the majority of the players in the National Football League are black. Mm. 
So, and we have a way of getting to those guys where the head coach don't have to deal with that. So Bobby Petrino was a play caller. Mm-hmm. And I'll never forget, I thought I was going to be. Mm-hmm. And after I got there, he goes, shoot, I, I need to tell you this. I'm, I'm, I'm going to call the plays. I go, wow. Oh. My and I left Saturday. He said, well, that's the way I got the job. So I'm there now. And then yeah. I do. Mm-hmm. And so when Bob Petrino left, um, uh, our special teams coach at the time was going to Baltimore, real good friends with John Harbaugh. John Harbaugh called me about coaching the quarterback. That changed my career tremendously. Mm-hmm. Drafting Joe Flacco, coaching him his first two years, us going to the AFC championship game within his first two years gave me some credibility. Um, and uh, Al Davis called me and said, look, people don't understand this, but Al Davis wanted me to be his GM. Mm, when wow. he first interviewed me, it wasn't to be a coach. Mm, wow. I went and spent uh, a whole day and a half with, with Al. And when he called me back, he goes, hey, look, I want you to come here and, and be the GM, and we'll talk about coaching later on. I go, I don't, I don't want to do that. He goes, you don't understand my flow chart. I go, <laughs> flow chart or no flow chart. I coach. I'm a coach. Right. And he wasn't feeling that. And people don't know this. Al never said goodbye. He just hung up the phone. So I thought that was the end of that. <laughs> I go the next morning to go see Lovey Smith. And then he called me back after he had talked to my agent and said, no, Hugh. He goes, okay, you come here, you coach the offense, and you report to nobody but me. And I go, how that work? The head coach. And me, we used to work together at a college, so I got, <laughs> I got to have a relationship with him, but I want to help him and help the organization get the offense to where it needs to be. We worked that part of it out, and that's what made it happen for me. Mm-hmm. Me, quarterback, being the pl- primary play caller, it was my offense at the Raiders, and we did some great things. And that's dope. Um, to kind of go into something that you said, where it's like you kind of see as – you know, a black coach in this league, you, as soon as you come in, you know, you have to win. We actually had an episode <laughs> with you. One of our very first episodes that reached all major platforms, I believe it was episode eight, something eight. like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, episode eight, uh, we call it the right hue. And it was the episode about when you actually were let go from the mm-hmm. Browns. And what we were discussing was, were you given a fair shot? Because when you got that job, we knew it was a rebuild. And it's the same thing that I said to Cannon about when Brian Flores got that job in Miami. Like, are they're rebuilding. And it's just like when you're in a rebuilding phase, I've said that organizations never love diversity until it's time for a cleanup. And the, <laughs> and the Browns needed a cleanup. And it was just like the re- same reason why I you know, was hoping Brian Flores didn't take the job is the same reason why I didn't want you to take that Cleveland Browns job because it's just like, once things start looking up, I felt like now you're on the hot seat when, in all actuality, the analytics guys, they're telling you, oh, we got to get rid of this talent. We got to get rid of this talent. Accumulate all of these picks so that we can, you know, go into this next phase, be under the salary cap, have all these guys on these rookie contracts, and then you get the quarterback which I wasn't sold on in the beginning anyway. Mm-hmm. But you get the quarterback. You did a great job with Baker. I'll tell you that. And then, and then now it's just like, oh, there's these expectations. All of a sudden, after you know being one of the worst franchises, you automatically have these expectations, and then they let you go for Freddie Kitchens. Well, I'm but- going <laughs> to dive into all of it, but I will say this, and I think you guys, I think you meant it very bright very smart. Minority coaches don't take jobs to lose. Right. 
there, there's no way. Why would I take my value from Cincinnati when it was at its highest? Mm-hmm. I was a coach of the year. Mm-hmm. And go take a job, okay, that I thought I was going to lose. So nobody does that. Right. And so obviously I thought I was going there to win. Mm-hmm. I was. I was. I did too. I was put there to win. I, if you go look at my press conference, all I talked about was winning. Mm-hmm. Right. I had a known that you know it was going to be like it was. I don't think any of you guys would say he. Anybody would take that job. So right. yeah. my point. I look at everything. Um, you know, like I said, I'm not going to deep dive into it. But we were the youngest team mm-hmm. in the league. We had you know quarterback issues for several years. Mm-hmm. Um, we had the, the Hall of Fame left tackle retired. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we had injuries. I mean, however you want to look at it, it just didn't add up to what it should have been. Mm-hmm. And um, at the end of the day, and it is the most disappointing part is your name is tied to some of the most historic losing in football. Mm-hmm. My thing is I tell people all the time, that those two years of 2016, 2017, mm-hmm the hardest years of my life mm-hmm. or more so than that it was probably when i did my best coaching job. it was <laughs> and i truly <laughs> believe that coach because i tell you since 2016 2017 baker mayfield and that offense to me has they have way more talent <laughs> and have done less and so i just think and that's why we call that episode the right hue because i just felt like if they had stayed the course like they do for so many other coaches who don't deserve it. Um, they stay the course and just let things pan out. I feel like the Browns would be turning the corner right now with all yeah, of that I, talent. Oh, you guys, my biggest regret of it all was bringing an office coordinator. Mm. Never. Todd Haley. Yeah, never mm. give up what you do. Yeah. yeah. Mm. What this is, I don't care who you got to fight. Uh-huh. Who you yeah, but whatever that is, don't give up on you, mm-hmm. regardless of the situation, because that's what got me the job. Wow. But did I have uh, A.J. Green, Marvin Jones, Mosa New, Tyler? No, I didn't. I mean, I had what I had. Mm-hmm. At the same time, that's the hard part. If people have a vision of how they want to win, and it's not the vision of how you want to win, remember, the coach has to coach your team. Right. So when you hire a coach, you're hiring his vision, you're hiring his skill set. So you gotta do everything you can to showcase that. And if you don't give him those things that he needs, you're not gonna win. It just doesn't work that way. Okay, I'm gonna take that last part that you said. I had what I had. That's gonna lead into my question. But I wanna dive into this question that we got from our, in the comment section. What's the hardest transition between coordinator and head coach in the NFL? The hardest transition is you're responsible for any and everything. Mm. Uh, the head coach, you know, obviously offense, defense, special teams, dealing with the media, player issues, um, organizational issues. You have to be on top of all of that. When you're the coordinator, you're in your own bubble. Your offense, right. your thing. You're not worried about anything else. Do you have some of those same responsibilities when it comes to the players? Absolutely. But you focus on one thing, and that's it. And that's the real big difference between the two. So so you see a lot of coordinators come in, they're first-time head coaches, but they have tons of coordinator experience, and they still fail as head coaches. Is there any single key that you think that – or a single attribute that you believe 
a coordinator needs to actually be a head coach because once again, we've seen almost every single person in the Bill Belichick tree struggle. But then Brian Flores kind of goes to Miami. He has success. But cool. outside I of that, also predicted we'll have success. <laughs> Let's oh, yes, we'll, we'll give you your credit. I think mm-hmm. it's having the right vision. I think the alignment and the collaboration piece within your organization, the organizations who typically don't win, boy, there's a vision alignment issue. If somebody, I mean, what I'm, for instance, Cannon might think we need to win this way, and, and Williams, you might think we need to win another way, and then Hill, you might say, well, wait a minute, we need this, and we go out and we say, oh, no, we're going to do it together. But actuality, you guys are pulling the strings over there. Yeah, that there, there's that just that natural impact because you think you want to do it your way. I, I say it again, if you don't hire a coach and take his vision and go get him what he needs to win because he's the one on the front line. Mm. he's the one that's got to deal with the media every day. He's the one that's got to deal with the players every day. He's the one that's got to make it happen. Then you're, it's not going to work. You're mistaken in so many of those places. That's what it is. There's some behind the water cooler infighting mm-hmm. that you look up and these teams are not successful. And it could be just one person seeing something different. And boy, it could be a bad seed and it just kills the whole. Okay. So, with that being said, you said the coach is kind of on the front lines. Mm-hmm. But normally when there's a new regime com- coming in, there is the GM hired and then he brings in his guy. I don't care who the GM is. Right. So do, you, so do you think the, the coach should actually be, get hired first and then interview the GM? No, the coach don't have to be hired first. I just think whoever those particular people are, they have to have similar vision. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. They have to have very transparent conversations because at the end of the day, the GM is not coaching the team. Right. The coach is. And it is too much of a job for a coach to do to be making trades and understanding all the different rules that you have to deal with when you want to trade a player, all those things. Trust mm-hmm. me, coach your team. So that GM is needed. But the GM is just another extension to ownership, to the executive team for the head coach to go get him what he needs. When the head coach is successful, the GM's successful. Yeah, right. When yeah. the GM is successful, normally the head coach is successful. Mm-hmm. Okay. That's the way it's supposed to work hand in hand. And when you don't have that kind of um, synergy going on, it just doesn't work. So you said Al Davis was your guy, uh-huh. right? We all know that Al Davis was a visionary. Right, mm-hmm. and Al Davis said, "Hugh Jackson, GM. We need more black executives, coach. So why not Hugh Jackson, GM?" At that time, I was so driven of wanting to have an opportunity to be a head coach. I thought I was one of the better coaches in the league. I thought I could get men to follow me. I thought I could change culture by being in the building with men. Mm-hmm. I never forget walking into Oakland, and I never forget Darren McFadden. When I met him, Darren had this kind of puppy-eyed look because I think he was feeling like, well, here comes another one of these coordinators that's going to just do whatever and not going to give me a chance. So I never forget. I said, Darren, what do you like to run? Mm. Not what they've been doing. What do you want to do? He said, mm. Coach, man, and he he told me just like he said, Coach, man, I like to go downhill <laughs> and counters and gaps 
and lead plays, and I like to get the ball on the pitch. Mm-hmm. He goes, and I know this zone stuff here because they were a huge zone team at the time. Mm-hmm. He says, I know I'm about to run this zone stuff. He says, but and I can do it. He said, but that's not my thing. I go, those other things, that's what you want? He said, yeah. I said, okay, I'll tell you what. You own it because I'm going to own it for you. That's what I'm going to give you. Mm. And he went that year, and he looked like a different guy. Yes, he did. And he got hurt. He was averaging 6.1 yards a carry mm. in 2011 before he got hurt. Now, Coach, now this is what that was the number one question on my list that I had. <laughs> Scheme versus personnel. Now, I know for a fact that you have an actual – scheme like you know what this is my foundation of my offense this is what i like to do this is what i like to run but you went to this man you went to Darren mcfadden and you said what do you like to do best and you adapted to what he liked to do best so please explain to me the importance of scheme versus personnel to me that that's everything that's the reason why kyle shanahan is so good at what mm, he yeah because he knows how to, within his scheme, showcase players' talents and abilities. Mm-hmm. That is what this is all about. The great coaches can take players and put them in a situation to where they maybe even look a little bit better than what they are. Mm-hmm. You know? But that player plays extremely hard because he knows the coach is giving him everything he's asked for. So he owns it. Most people are about scheme. I'm not, look, like you said, we all have a playbook, but that playbook goes out the window once I see what I got from a talent standpoint. Mm-hmm. So go to Hugh Jackson, 2015, coaching the Bengals. I was called one of the most innovative coaches in football. Yes. Hugh Jackson in 2016, coaching the Browns. We didn't have those kind of players. So we couldn't do a lot of things that, that I wasn't talking about being the most innovative coordinator anymore. I was talking, well, can this guy even win a game? Yeah. <laughs> you have to do what you have to do. But the thing I always get excited about, you take Terrell Pryor, mm-hmm. who was really a quarterback coming yeah. out. I had him in Oakland a little bit. Yeah, mm-hmm. on the league, decided he wanted to play receiver. In 2016, he had a 1,000 yards receiving yep. for Cleveland Browns. Mm-hmm. He, I mean, I love Terrell. He, that hadn't happened for him since. Mm-hmm. Well, you take Darius Hayward Bay, who I had at, at Oakland. He was a mm-hmm. draft. Darius Hayward Bay's best year was in 2011. He had 975 yards receiving. Mm-hmm. You know, and he, he never seen anything like that. Yeah. So my is, it is still truly about taking people and not having them be and putting them in position to be the best version of themselves, whether it's the individual and the team. Mm-hmm. And that's why people ask me all the time about Baker. Baker was drafted for a specific reason with me leading the charge mm-hmm. yeah, because I know how I wanted to use him. Well, people now say, well, Baker can't play. I don't think that's true at all. It goes back to the same thing. You look where the head coach comes from now. He's a running football coach, and there's nothing wrong with that. Mm-hmm. But what it does is it limits what, in my opinion, what Baker's really good at because he's a shotgun quarterback. Mm-hmm. Right. Like Heisman Trophy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's slinging the ball. I mean – that's what you do. You got to let people be who they are yeah. in order to best value out of them. So I think that's where that's all coming from. And that's why Patrick Mahomes is so good. He's with Andy Reid. Andy Reid knows exactly what to do. He's put that guy in position to be good and, and add value to his career. Now, Coach, you made, it, you made it sound so simple. You made it sound so simple. Now, you've been around the league, and I also know that you've seen some coaches that, had, that didn't do that. They stuck with their scheme. They're like, this is my scheme. This is where we're going to run. Why is that? 
because you can't do things you don't know. <laughs> Some people just don't have that experience of doing different things that way. And they get so regimented into this is what I know, this is what I know how to do. And that's what they try to force on a particular player. I've never seen that work very well. I just, I think um, that's why a lot of quarterbacks have failed in the mm -hmm. National Football League, in my opinion. Because they're being forced to play a oh, game yeah. that doesn't play to their strength. Absolutely. So the guys you see now, I mean, the National Football League is changing, it's evolving. Some of the top quarterbacks or minority quarterbacks who can run around and mm -hmm. make plays yep. outside with their legs and with their arms. And so the game has changed. And now you see more coaches adapting and doing things. So the number one offense in NFL right now is from a coach who is at Texas Tech, mm -hmm. Cliff Kingsbury. I yep. mean, they're, they're doing unbelievable things at mm -hmm. Arizona offense, you know. And at the same time, two years ago, when he first came to the people said, oh, this guy's going to be a bust. Yeah. Well, what happened? Ownership yeah. put him in a position mm -hmm. to succeed. What did they do? They drafted a quarterback in the first round that first year. Mm -hmm. When the other coach was there, he comes in. He didn't say, let me figure out if, if the guy can do it. And I, I want Kyler Murray. And they let him I, do it. I need – why? Because they need to add value to the coach. Mm -hmm. Right? You now Absolutely. go give this guy everything he needs to be successful so that you can say that hire was right. That's why I think hirings and firings of coaches, uh, letting players go – it's all, if people really stop and look at it, you got to ask yourself, well, wait a minute, are we giving this coach what he needs? Are we putting this player in the best position that he can to be successful? If he was doing it then, why can't he do it now? Mm -hmm. and, and those are the questions that never get asked. And people don't think like that because every year there's a draft, there's new players coming in, there's new talent, and fans go, man, we got new players, so we should be good. Yeah, <laughs> right. But those players <laughs> might not fit. <laughs> Yeah. Now it doesn't fit everywhere. Yeah. So I actually have two questions for you. So the first question is, knowing that you had a plan in place to really put Baker in the best situations possible, did you kind of feel slighted and really want to box him when he came over to you on the sideline like that when you was with the Bengals? <laughs> you know what? I, I, I've never even seen it. Uh, I didn't – you know, players – go to thing that was the first time i've ever had a quarterback act like that mm -hmm. you know and to this day i still don't know what that was about mm -hmm. and, and probably will never will know that's <laughs> give an account of. but at the same time yeah i had an idea and it was starting to uh, bother me because we wasn't doing what i thought we needed to do mm -hmm. to showcase his talent and ability then early mm -hmm. once he started to play i thought we were trying to and again todd was doing what he thought he needed to do we were trying to beat Pittsburgh Steelers, and, and that wasn't the Pittsburgh Steelers. And he's not that. Yeah, we were the Cleveland Browns. And so uh, we needed to do that better, and, and that was my issue with, with our offense. Okay. Now, Coach, what we love to do here on this podcast is change the narrative. That's 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 been the bedrock of us. So we talked a lot about football and X's and O's and, and philosophy and scheme, but – what I want to know and a lot of people want to know is they always talk about the hours that a coach has to put in. I want to know how does that affect the family um, at home, especially for an African-American male? <laughs> you have a strong wife. <laughs> because, uh, she's going to be uh, mother, dad, 
going to be a little bit of everything. When, when a coach is grinding, trying to make it, and, and you have to understand, everybody is not built the same, right? Every, some people don't have aspirations of being head coaches. Mm-hmm. I, there's no way that I didn't want to be the best or be considered one of the best in the world at what I do. Why do it? Mm-hmm. That's just the way I was built. And my people, my, my office mates when I was growing up was, was John Gruden. Yeah. So my thing was, I mean, John's going to do things well, I can't do. Mm-hmm. You know, I chased it. And in order to chase it, you have to have somebody at home mm-hmm. who can handle that. You know, and that's very difficult. Uh, it's very difficult on a family because it's, it's almost like a um, – the reward is there's some things that my kids have experienced that they never would experience. Mm-hmm. If dad hadn't ascended to where he did. Mm-hmm. And there's some things that I've been able to unpeople and doors that have been opened to me because of what I've created in my life. But at the same time, boy, it was there another dance competition I wish I was at. Mm-hmm. <laughs> a, you know, a, a teacher parent conference mm-hmm. night. I that. Yes, and I, I have to under I have to explain that I have to be very transparent with my kids about that so they understand why I wasn't. It wasn't because Dad didn't want to be. It mm-hmm. was because Dad burned that midnight oil mm-hmm. to stay in line to be one of the best at what he does. So mm-hmm. he for for you and for all. And that was probably one of the that's probably one of the most impactful things I've heard you say having a strong wife because I have a cousin. Mm-hmm. He's the defensive line coach at North Dakota State, and he actually got his wife to move to North Dakota. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that says a lot. I'm like, I'm like, what? Like, like during the holidays, they don't come home, and during the holidays in North Dakota, it's like 37 feet of snow. And I'm like, oh, you yeah. got your, you, that's a keeper because she moved to North Dakota mm-hmm. for you. you. That you move, I've moved eight times. Wow. <laughs> You have to understand, and, and to me, it got to be where it was starting to be fun for the kids. I, I hate moving. They were gonna right. They were gonna go meet new friends, mm-hmm. new opportunities. And so, one thing I know about my kids, they'll be well adjusted. They'll be nowhere mm-hmm. they can't go mm-hmm. and themselves. Or when that feeling of boy, I'm by myself, how do I handle this? They have a checklist they can go to because they've been through it. And and that's not the best thing. I mean, I'm saying that because I think you got to find something in it to feel good about it. You know, boy, do you wish you could stay in one place? You know, Marvin stayed in Cincinnati for 15 years. Yeah. I mean, his, his, his daughter and his son both graduated, you know, in Ohio. Mm-hmm. And so that's something to be proud of. But there's not many organizations like that. Yeah, mm-hmm. you know, it doesn't work that way in, in football. Throughout your coaching career, what was the most fulfilling stop? Where was the place that felt like this is the organization that feels like home for me? Open. Oakland? Oh, no, no question. Oh, my dad's going to love this episode. (laughs) Cincinnati was unbelievable for me, but Oakland, the reason why I say that is the fans. Mm -hmm. You know, in downtown Jack London Square, (laughs) amongst everybody, and that was different. The head coach normally looked out in all the top places there, Red Hawk, a Black Hawk, I forget the name of it these most expensive places. I didn't want to do that. I wanted to live right downtown. Mm-hmm. And I had the team and we were winning and there was excitement in the streets. Mm-hmm. And Oakland, California is, there's a lot of violence there. Mm-hmm. It down during football season. Mm-hmm. People want to go to the game. Yeah. People want to be at the game. I could go into Everett and Jones Barbecue in, in Oakland and the gangsters would walk in and say, coach, we got you. Mm. 
Anything you, you ain't got, you go anywhere you want. You don't have to worry about anything. <laughs> <laughs> that that that's what it's all because they they saw somebody who looked like them mm-hmm. that was doing good things yeah. and it was him feel good on Sundays and Thursdays and Mondays. Yeah, and what this is all about. So was you, were you more too short or E40 when you was in Oakland? Man, I was too short. Too short. Short dog, <laughs> baby. Too short was right above Everett where he did. That's where his studio was. Mm-hmm. Okay. He too short all the time. Because he would come downstairs, have barbecue with us, you know, have fun. Too short was the dude. That, that was a lot of fun. That's I'm dope. an E40 man myself. But, you know, too short is the man. And I was... <laughs> now, you talked about the infrastructure in Oakland how you like the infrastructure, but let's say the media, they would categorize that as a toxic environment because they feel that Al Davis is too handsy, too involved. He doesn't allow the coach to actually coach. How do you that's feel? Why I think that's different. See, I, I know he gets blamed that way. That's why mm-hmm. I said what I yeah. That wasn't the case with me. Mm-hmm. I don't know why. I don't know if he was at the end uh, or he felt that. He wasn't that way with me. Now, I will tell you this story. When I first went there, and our first OTA practice, I'll never forget this. So, like I said, Tom Cable was the head coach. Mm-hmm. They were a zone-running team. And so I wanted the players the first day to hit the ground running, doing things that they knew how to do, mm-hmm. which was inside and outside zone. So I put together the plan, uh, did the installation, and we were going to do outside and inside zone the first day. And we had a great practice. Not a good Oakland Raider practice, a great Oakland Raider practice. I get home, back to my room, and uh, the phone rings, and Monica's uh, sweet in time. She was Al's assistant. I don't care. Wherever I was, she was going to be the person to call me and say, hey, Al Davis would like to talk to you. Mm-hmm. So I'm thinking Al is fired up watching the tape. Or he's like, let's mm-hmm. go. I get on the phone, and this is the only time Al Davis has ever talked like this to me. The first <laughs> He said, what in the hell I go, huh? He go, I didn't bring you here to run no fucking zone. <laughs> I didn't bring you here to run inside and outside zone. I brought you here because you run power. You run counter. You run all kind of things. Oh, I said, come. he goes, I don't want to hear it. I don't want to see that crap no more. And like I said, Al Davis never said bye when he hung up. Yeah, he it, just hung up. <laughs> I got in the car, went back to the office, changed that installation quickly. <laughs> no, 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 we, we got to run running, that back. We were running counters and gaps and reverses <laughs> from there on in. Hey, but that's, uh, that's really good to know that not only did he see that you know, in you, but he had the buy-in also to yeah. be like, no, I bought you in here to be you. Absolutely. Yeah. And yeah. so now I, I really, I really understand why you say that might be the, 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 the most fulfilling spot that you've been in because right. you had that buy-in and you had yeah. that belief. Mm-hmm. When the, the thing that you always ask yourself, you always have to ask yourself a couple of questions. Can I trust you? Yeah. Right. Yeah. First thing you got to ask when you're dealing with people, you really don't know. Mm-hmm. Can I trust you mm-hmm. then the next thing is are you committed to me are you going to do the things for me to be successful mm-hmm. truly successful not just be here and i i can answer those first two of that and the last one is are we really gonna do this together mm-hmm. you know 
And if you if you don't have if you can't answer those three things, it's hard to do. Now, some people might lie to you. <laughs> people can tell you they're gonna do one thing and do another. I knew for a fact that everything I asked of Al, he was gonna do. Mm -hmm. And uh, to me, that is what was so important. Yeah. So, <laughs> um, <laughs> let me ask you this: as far as you know, your career. Where do you see yourself getting next? Do you see yourself back in the NFL? Um, do you want to, you know, possibly go to front office because that's something that, you know, Al Davis might have, you know, implanted it to you? Or, you know, you just a coach, you know, I'm, in your I'm blood. Put on the grass. I'm not going to sit here and jive you, man, at all. I need to write this wrong. Okay. Mm -hmm. that, that's not, that, that's not why I'm no loser. Mm -hmm. I love it. And I don't, I don't lose. I've never lost at anything in my life. And mm -hmm. I've never lost like that in my life. Mm -hmm. I can smell the grass at night. When I go to bed, I can smell the grass when I wake up in the morning. Mm -hmm. I'm not eating men. Mm -hmm. I need to go back and do what I do because what somebody's going to get is one of the best coordinators, assistant head coaches in football. Right. After being in the NFL, I just like coaching. Yeah. It might be a major college. I don't, I don't know. Yeah. It's not going to be at high school. I don't yeah. know if I have patience for that. <laughs> I am ready to get back and do what I do and reclaim my spot as one of the better coaches. Mm -hmm. Now, so you said you got some of your jobs. <laughs> you got your jobs based off the relationships that you built. Am I right or wrong by quoting you about that? Say that one more time. You got some of your jobs by the relationships that you built. Am I right or wrong by quoting you? No, I think I got the jobs because of my reputation mm -hmm. that I could mm -hmm. get like, yeah, yeah, you yeah. Your best players, mm -hmm. I play. So your reputation precedes you first, mm -hmm. and then the relationship part normally comes with it. See, because I asked because it seems the way the trend is going now in the league is it, everything is based off relationship. Mm -hmm. It's like, hey, did I drink coffee with you this day? Mm -hmm. Oh yeah, mm -hmm. well come come join my staff. Mm -hmm. So right. I, I so what I wanted to ask, I'm like, well, what relationship do you have? Now that you can think, you know what, I can get this um, coordinator job to get my, my, my feet wet again. Mm -hmm. Well, you, it's really interesting you say that because there's only been one relationship. And don't get me wrong. And I hope whoever's listening, I have other really good friends in the National Football League who are very good friends. Uh, Mike Zimmer and, and a host of other people. But the only guy that's ever shown me that with trust, respect, and have my back is Martin Lewis. Mm -hmm. Nobody else. I mean, you don't normally have five guys who will do that for you. There's normally one or two. Yeah, who that's who a fact. I you might fall down flat on your face. They're gonna pick you up because they know who you are. Right. What you bring to the table. So you're right. I mean, networking people can network more than they coach. I just can't do that. I want my work to speak for me. And I think if people look at my work, they go, "Wait a minute, this guy knows what he's doing." So. That's the most important piece. And I get that people work the phones and do all that. I just, I just never been me. Mm -hmm. Now we had a, we had a comment in the comment section. Um, and it's one of my good friends and it's a pretty good question. Have you ever thought about HBCU sports? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I'm in, I'm open to HBCU, LSU. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I I want to go coach and sometimes mm -hmm. what it takes. I mean, I, I know how to win. I know how to get people to follow me. I know how to put people in place to win. Uh, I think I have a very good plan and a vision on how you do that. 
And I think I'm also about trying to help minority men get yeah. the opportunities that they rightfully deserve. When I went to Cleveland, I brought Pep Hamilton. Right. Ray Horton, I brought Kirby Wilson. I mean, mm-hmm. those were my lieutenants. Mm-hmm. But when you don't win, it hurts them. Yeah, yeah absolutely. It hurts them. So to kind of go back to that HBCU question, there's a lot of, you know, with the current climate that we're in, I'll say, I hate using that word, but to just put it lightly, um, you have seen a lot of the top athletes, some in basketball, uh, some in college football as well, putting HBCUs on their top 10 list, their top five list as well. Do you believe that, that is a sustainable trend and that some that's something that the NCAA will actually allow to let, you know, a lot of these students go to the, the HBCUs and by allow, I mean, you know, we all know that the NCAA is a cash cow and the money is at Ohio state, Alabama, Georgia, USC, those schools. So do you think there can be a mass exodus to HBCUs or are they just going to say, Hey, you guys, the, couple you can go to hbcus but we will even overlook some things to let the the top majority of these top guys come to these bigger blue blood programs i hate to put the pressure on this man but he's built for it yeah mm-hmm. Sanders is gonna change the game mm-hmm. he's gonna change the game yeah. as long as he stays there mm-hmm. you know there'll be people if he has success there's gonna be people throwing things at him begging him to leave to come and change this program Mm-hmm. If he stays, it will open the doors for so many more minority coaches and players, as you see, because he's starting to get players to come there and supposed to be going to big-time schools. Right. Mm-hmm. And that's when players go, wow, man, maybe I can be a bigger fish in a smaller pond and do some great things and have things happen for me. I've seen that, and I think it's starting to happen. And that, honestly, I mean, go go ahead run his offense and, and, and win the championship, <laughs> but that's just me. That's just me. Now – they might not know, but I know that you're a basketball guy. Oh, now, yeah. now, recently we we saw that Klay Thompson suffered a season-ending Achilles injury. Now, there, there's been a lot of talk. Klay just had the ACL. Now he has the Achilles. Do you think he can ever get back to being Klay Thompson, or do you think that part of his career is over? Wow, that's a great question because when you're as good as Clay Thompson was, um, you expect that. That's mm-hmm. what you see. And it might take him some time, more time than I think we all know, mm-hmm. to get back to being that. Can he do that? I've seen guys recover from worse. Mm-hmm. Okay. Only those particular people have the right foundation from a physical standpoint, emotional standpoint. I don't know him that way. Yeah, that's true. This was Chad Johnson we were talking about. I'd be like, heck yeah, because I know it so well. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I wish the best for Clever. Mm-hmm. You know, for uh, what a tremendous player. Yeah. Um, dealing with some big time injuries. But at the same time, I want him healthy, but I want him to stay away from my Lakers. So, <laughs> I'm Laker. Hell and I are Laker fans, so we're yeah, watching. I'm Lakers of my team. Yeah, yeah that's good. Uh, through and through. I mean, yeah. I still have front door access there for myself. And okay. I'm um, and uh, it's been uh, that's my that's my squad. Yeah, that's our squad too. So yeah, congrats on the recent championship. <laughs> we are 
Yeah, we're going for it. Uh, <laughs> you know, I, don't care, I don't care what neither one of y'all have to say. My boys pulled off something the Lakers could not do. Who's your boys? The Suns. We traded for Chris so, Paul. Y'all couldn't do that. Just <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Coach. Hey, look. Oh, it, it's all I have. It's all. Let me have my moment, Coach. That is no moment. You in the West. <laughs> <laughs> hey, look, I'm, I'm telling you, we gonna make some. No- we gonna make some noise. Devin Booker, he gonna do his thing. You can turn up the volume if you like. Yeah. yeah. Hey, I'm gonna do. I'm gonna do. Look, Coach, I'm a Cincinnati Bengals fan. I know how to talk shit when my back is against well, the wall. Well, bring it on. <laughs> look, I, I can do whatever. Against the wall. You talk about CP3. I mean, come on. He got to play LeBron. LeBron James. LeBron James and Anthony Davis. They don't want that smoke. And we just got we got who who do we just bring in? Come on now. <laughs> you just got Wesley Matthews side right before we came on the air. Oh, we just got Matthews? Matthews. Oh, Look, stop playing. Stop playing. So nobody right. have to talk about Danny Green anymore. Yeah, yeah. Hey, y'all ain't finna just be ganging up on me. I can look, hey. We got love for you though. Yeah, yeah, you, know, you are you are guy. But the all right. one down. That's all me. While we're on basketball, real quick, what do you think about the Nets um, as they're configured right now? KD and Kyrie, do you think they they have potential to to be a problem and get to the conference championship past the Miami Heat and Milwaukee, or them boys are gonna be a problem? Okay, mm-hmm. man, KD is one of the best players there is. I'm glad he's out of the West. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so glad when he left Golden State. <laughs> Me too. Good. Kyrie, I watched every time when he was with LeBron. Mm-hmm. Look, what people don't understand, every Batman needs Robin. Yeah. Yep. All these great players, they're not great players by themselves. Mm-hmm. Now, it's got to be the right fit. Kyrie was the right fit for LeBron. Can Kyrie be the right fit for KD? Mm-hmm. We're going to find that out, just like Anthony Davis is the right fit for LeBron. Mm-hmm. You look at football, you go Randy Moss and Tom Brady. You know, yeah. it's just, every bad man has his route, man. Mm-hmm. So that that getting that right uh, chemistry and getting the right players to fit those roles is so important. So I got, to kind of get back to football, and I'm sorry, my son's upstairs and he is having a fit because <laughs> I am not there right now. But I want to ask you, in 2005, this is one question, and I'm going to transition to something else. But in 2005, how far do you think that team really could have went if Carson Palmer didn't get hurt? Super Bowl. I think so, too. I there's, no said that. I, I, there's no doubt in my mind because we were very optimistic on defense. We were getting turnovers by the bucket loads. We could score on offense. Mm-hmm. Unbelievable year. We were playing in our no huddle. Mm-hmm. It wasn't really – trending in the National Football League. So we were kind of on a different level. And, boy, we were doing some things. We had three receivers that you had to deal with. Mm-hmm. And really, yeah. really wasn't no joke neither. So uh, we, we, were, we were really good. We thought we would have did some real damage. Just like I think in 2015, mm-hmm. if Andy didn't get hurt, uh, we would have went to the Super Bowl. Coach, you've been a part. You, coach, you've been a part of my two worst sports moments <laughs> in my life. I, I still, I still got love for you, but because you took us to new heights. But man, those were two of the worst uh, experiences of my life. Um, did you really get into a fight with Chad at halftime? No. <laughs> I laugh at that all the time. Okay. All it was was Chad had a. Uh, he was getting the IV, 
And he got up because he just kind of lost his mind. When I went in there, I heard him yelling. And he snatched it out. There was blood going everywhere. And so I grabbed him. And I let him go. And then people thought we were fighting. He was slipping because he had his cliques on. Mm-hmm. <laughs> in, in freaking training room. Look, look. look <laughs> Chad put it. You can call Chad right now. And he dare to put hands on me. Yeah, that's that. That's that grown man talk. Talk to him, you. <laughs> let him know. Hey, he already know. <laughs> but let him but know. it's also the respect thing. Like, like, one hundred percent. Like you said, one of the reasons that they want a coach like you in the NFL is because you can control a locker room. And it's like, as a leader of men, I, you know, I play high school sports as much as I play, but I would have never, as much as my coaches got on my nerves sometimes and I didn't like the things that they wanted to do. They were like father figures to me. So I would have never, you know, put hand thought I ever thought about putting hands on them. Well, it was Chad a respect is, thing. You say that because I, me and Chad still talk today mm-hmm. all the time. Yeah. He'll call something. We'll, we'll talk about something. He got cigars going. He's mm-hmm. doing his mad ratings, all kind of things. Yeah. He's doing that. Yeah. Well, Let's fast forward, and I didn't help draft Chad. Mm-hmm. I walked into the room with Chad there. Okay. I could make him a better player. Mm-hmm. But let's fast forward to Baker Mayfield. I helped him be the first overall pick in the draft. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Thank you. And and you have a problem with who? For what? You you. <laughs> yeah. Listen, and, that, and that's why I asked, like, did you really want to box him? Like, do you know what I did for you? Well, after I got away from it now, look at here. We can box. We can street fight. <laughs> 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 let them know. And so let me ask you this. I know you said you kind of came in the door when Chad was already there. Mm-hmm. Was that offense one of the best collections of talents you've been a part of? Because that was a really high-profile offense at the time. Oh, man, yeah. They, I, I would have to say yes. The, the, they were different. Mm-hmm. Chad, TJ, Chris Henry, um, the late Chris Henry, I should say, uh, Kelly Washington. Mm-hmm. Uh, we had some guys. I mean, man, those guys could play. And uh, they had this mentality that they never got tired. People don't understand. Those guys would take offensive reps and then go take the defensive reps. Mm-hmm. You can't get players to do that today. Yeah, no. Nope. Yeah, I'm tired, man. You're yeah. going to pull my string or something. They are different. Those guys were different. The game is soft. When you, when you put it like that, I just hate how soft it's just from a fan standpoint just every four years it just gets softer and softer and softer from the time that i was a little boy to now and it's just the fact that they don't even want to practice anymore like it's like for the collective bargaining they're trying to take practice out right they don't see it as being soft they see it as safety you know that's the way the league it's positioned. The bodies are big. They're physical. Mm-hmm. They're tough. And it's up to the coach to create the environment for toughness of his team. I'm being very honest with you. That's why I love being with Marvin in Cincinnati. He didn't have an issue tackling mm-hmm. in early. That's why we started fast. Marty Scheidenheimer taught me that a long time ago when I worked for him at the Redskins. He believed in playing football the way you play football. Mm-hmm. Because if you don't, it's going to take you a quarter of the season mm-hmm. to figure out who you are. And you probably have lost some games at that time. Yeah. And so when you tackle and you do all those things early, your team is ready. They're prepared. Because if you think about preseason games, the veteran players play in the first game, they play 12 plays. Mm-hmm. The second game, they play a quarter. Mm-hmm. The third game, they play to halftime. And they don't even play the fourth game. Yeah. 
So you better be doing something in training camp as far as tackling and hitting. So when the first game comes out, you ready. They're ready. They're ready. So I know we, we touched on this uh, you know earlier in the show, but how do you think things can change with this new rule that they put in place that if an organization grooms a head coach or a front office exec, that team will get a third round pick. Do you think that that will actually work when teams actually were doing everything that they do could do to circumvent the Rooney rule? So do you think this may bring change? Let me say this. I appreciate um, people taking swings at trying to do something. Yeah. Um, to mm-hmm. me, the optics look right and sound right. My question would be, because I really want to understand it. I've been trying to understand it from the outside in. So the team that's developing you gets the reward. The team that hires you gets nothing. Nothing. Mm-hmm. So yeah. I'm sitting here in, let's say, Cincinnati, and let's mm-hmm. say I'm the running back coach. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm not going to get a head coaching job. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to get a GM job. So you just eliminated me. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm the wide receiver coach. You just I'm not going to get a head coaching job mm-hmm. or a GM job. You just eliminated me too. That's where the minority coaches are housed at. Yeah. Yeah. There's only mm-hmm. two minority quarterback coaches in all of pro football. There's only two minority offensive coordinators in all of pro football. Mm-hmm. So tell me where these guys are gonna come from that you're talking about developing. You're right. It makes sense. I don't know I don't know who they are. Who are they? Who are these men that they keep talking about pipeline? Where are these men that's supposed to be in the pipeline right now? Because you don't go from a seasoned veteran running back coach, you go coach quarterbacks in that. So, ba- based off what you just said, a young, football-minded individual who's in college right now or grad school, what would you say to them? How can they get their foot in the door so that we can have more African-American coaches? Yeah. So there is a program that is in place. It's the internship program in the mm-hmm. National Remember, they were supposed to hire two minorities mm-hmm. on offense mm-hmm. to groom them to become those quarterback coaches and coordinators. Mm-hmm. Those are the guys that are going to have a chance. It's the younger generation. It's mm-hmm. the young coaches who are out there who can get into the National Football League, into that program, because that is a track that puts you in the quarterback room. Yes. You need to be in that room in order for that to happen. <clears throat> So can you um, briefly take us to like th- through the coaching interview process? Mm-hmm. Because I'm sure it's way different from me getting hired than mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Now you talking about coach or coordinator or what? Either either or. Oh wow, the head coach is very extensive because it's not just about you. You, you really be interesting because it's not about X's and O's. Mm-hmm. It's really about who you are as a person. You know, your values, your morals, the things that you believe in, uh, your philosophy mm-hmm. on how you handle and deal with things. How are you going to work with the executive team? How are you going to work with the marketing team? How are you going to work with the, the beat writers and those mm-hmm. things? What is going to be your discipline of the team? What type of staff are you going to hire? Mm-hmm. And who can you hire? Mm-hmm. Uh, and so all those things are more important than your X's and O's. And I say that for this reason. It's no different than when you go draft a player. It's no, you got to kind of look at it when it comes to coaching. They're coming to you because you've demonstrated a skill mm-hmm. that they see would bring value to their organization. So in their mind, the X's and O's are there. 
that's where the problem, to me, that's where the problem happens because my X's and O's was because I had the right Joes. Mm -hmm. Uh, (laughs) I love it. (laughs) Get that. You know, you got to give me what I had Mm -hmm. in order to have me have the value that I need. And I think that's where a lot of people go wrong. Um, And then I think coaches go wrong because they don't ask the, the hard questions that need to be asked. They don't grind through it all because it's a tedious, long uh, interview. It probably goes from eight in the morning to six in the evening mm-hmm. one day, and then the next morning mm-hmm. uh, you have another, like somewhat of an exit interview before you leave. And then there's a second interview. And if you, you're fortunate to get the second interview, you got a good chance to get a job. Mm-hmm. You know, so that's what it is when it comes to head coaching. So you so you you talked about asking the right questions. Why during the draft do coaches and GMs and front offices ask these crazy questions? What point does that serve? Um, because every year there's always you know a leak about some of the crazy questions that players like these incoming players get asked during these interviews. What does that? What purpose does that serve? I don't believe it. I've heard it before. Mm-hmm. I, people who like to do that because they like to uh, put the player sometime in an uncomfortable situation. Well, my whole job is not to put the player in an uncomfortable situation. (laughs) My job is to showcase the good things about him and showcase his strengths and help him with his weaknesses. But I don't need to figure that all out with five or seven other people sitting in the room. I I don't want to do that. Mm -hmm. So I, I just don't believe in that. I know a lot of people do. That's just not my style. Respect. But back to your interviewing process, okay, you brought in Tom, Todd Haley as your offensive coordinator, right? Mm-hmm. Who were the other candidates that you interviewed, and what separated Todd to, for you to give him that offensive coordinator job? You're going to laugh. I interviewed eight other guys. Wow. <laughs> and what happens when you're in that situation, if you're going to turn over your baby to somebody, mm-hmm. somebody better have skins on the wall. Mm-hmm. They, on at a high level and be able to do the things that you've done and beat the people that you've beaten in your career mm-hmm. and do that. At that time, Todd was one of the better coordinators in the I mean, at Pittsburgh, he did some great yeah, things. Absolutely. That part was a no-brainer. You know, then you have to dive into all the other things. Is it the right fit for you, the staff, and everybody? And like I said, at that time, I was the one that was fighting a 1-31 in record an offense that looked nothing like the offenses I had been involved with. So it was almost like you were starting over on offense. And like I said to you guys earlier, I'd be the first to admit it again. I never should have did that. That's on me. Yeah. Uh, and you got to make sure you bet on you. Mm-hmm. Uh, if it goes wrong, you got to feel good about why. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. Well, Coach, um, before I get you out of here, mm-hmm. um, we want to thank you for spending your time with us and just kicking with us, telling your stories. We appreciate it. Uh, you were amazing. You're welcome here anytime. Um, and we want to know, who you got for the Super Bowl? Oh, man. Who I have in the AFC? Boy, this is hard. <laughs> because I think uh, now Andy Reid went to Glendale Junior College. Mm-hmm. Mike Tomlin is a minority, and I love him to death. And he's never had a losing season. But I have mm-hmm. reason I think the Chiefs are still the team to beat the AFC. Mm-hmm. And NFC, Pete Carroll went to University of Pacific. I'm a UOP guy. Uh, you watched them throttle the, the Cardinals last night, you know. 
Uh, but boy, something about the pack. If they can put it together. Mm. And I know everybody wants to say the buck. I love Tom Brady. Almost got him to come to Cal. <laughs> but I, I just think somehow the Packers are going to be. I think Aaron Rodgers is going to find a way to shoot. Yeah. They just got to learn to tackle. If they yeah. can learn to tackle, they can beat something. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. So that would be more so like the passing of the guards of Aaron Rodgers and Mahomes in the Super Bowl? It, it won't be passing. Because Ooh. he's already the, the the king of the hill right now, in my opinion. I mean, yes, absolutely. He's a Super Bowl winner, and no one has a contract like him. Mm-hmm. Yes, <laughs> that is true. <laughs> a legend at the bank. Absolutely. Well, once again, Coach, we want to thank you so much for joining us on this episode. Uh, once again, you're welcome anytime. anytime. We thank you. Um, something that we may talk to you about offline is, um, you know, like Cannon said, the District of Columbia, Washington, D.C. is actually really mm-hmm. big in human trafficking. Mm-hmm. Um, so I know you do a lot in Ohio, but we it's something that we would like to kind of do in the DMV area yeah. as well. So mm-hmm. um, and, and kind of, you know, you know, expand that foundation, you know, as, as a partner, if you'd like. So once again, we, we, you know, it's something that we're all truly, truly uh, serious about. So uh, we would love to talk to you more in depth about that as well. So once again, just thank you. Thank you, man. Thank you for your time. You guys are outstanding. It's awesome to see three brothers who, obviously, you guys have an unbelievable bond, relationship. Mm-hmm. I can tell you guys work off of each other well. Keep doing what you're doing because you're doing some great things. Thank you, we Coach. It. It's Thank been you. an honor and a pleasure. It really has. Thank you, sir. Thank you. All right. All Once right. again, uh, that's the Three Man Weave, episode 87 with Hugh Jackson. We're going to holler at y'all later.
in your front to the homies, how you grindin'? Look for a tramp, but you can't find him. You got one girlfriend and see her every night. Come around the partners, lying about your life. Looked at your watch and said 622. Cut to the house and said, baby, I love you. Can't act like a Mac, like Playboy Show. And the rest of the Macs in the streets of the O. Bitch, coming up, we learn how to break these holes. And when you're through getting yours, then you shake these holes. And when you're older, it's nothing but a routine. Making G's every day, working blue jeans. I know I've seen it before. I see it again. Young Tinder saying, short, would you be my man? Yeah. 